After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, and with me once again is the fabulous Jessica Hinkson. Hey, how you doing? Hi, I'm pretty good. How are you? Excellent, thank you. Welcome back to the show. The last time we talked to you was with your partner in crime talking about your short film, Jessica Jessica, currently available for viewing on CBC Gym. Yeah, it was a fun talk. Now, you have been crazy busy. We discussed before the show started that uh, you may or may not love sleep, but you do not get to do a lot of it because you have a new short film out called Joey. You have a new music video out based on Leonard Cohen's Suzanne, not your track, somebody else's. We'll talk about that in a second. And you're going to talk about one of your favorite films today on the show. So we got something jam-packed. Where do you want to start, Jessica? Honestly, after that introduction, I'm not really sure. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. I loved every minute of it. It's like, if I could wake up to that as an affirmation every morning and be like, yes, I'm winning. Yes, just list my accomplishments please. I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, we could talk about the music video first if you want, because it just launched. So let's talk about it. How do people find it? Who is the artist? What are you doing? Well, so my friend, Andrea Ramelow, who's a multi-award winning Canadian folk musician, released a album last year called Homage with 10 Leonard Cohen songs. And I directed the music video for her cover of Suzanne. Uh, which is beautiful and mystical and very ethereal. And we shot up in Prince Edward County this past July. And uh, it's now available on exclaim.ca. Now, ethereal is definitely the word I'd go for it. I'm currently doing a show for uh, Hollywood Suite uh, called A Year in Film. And one of the films I was assigned to talk about is Picnic at Hanging Rock. Have you seen this film? I have not, but I just saw the announcement for the show today in playback. Oh, Congratulations. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, we're working on season two right now, and that's one of the movies we're going to be talking about. And I did not realize how influential this film was, including the complete works of Sofia Coppola are, for all intents and purposes, based on the look of this film. And when I saw your variation of how you were shooting this and all, like, the gauziness and the the blown-out beauty and exposures and all that, I was like, oh, this is a very similar sort of style, and it's beautiful, and you're clearly developing a voice in that, also having seen your short, which we'll talk about in a second. Oh, you did watch Joey. Fantastic. I did. I did indeed. So talk to me a little bit about approaching the music video that way. You know, you think, well, Leonard Leonard Cohen wrote this poem that was then made into a song. And then, of course, I started my research because I've always been curious about the story of Suzanne and everybody's idea of what the song is. I went and started researching and looking into what the actual love story was because there's so many different versions of love. Uh, hence talking about Café de Fleur, and realizing that this story of Suzanne Verdal was actually a moment in time. And they kind of went on this very magical, mystical journey. And she was a beatnik living, you know, down by the St. Lawrence River in Montreal in the 60s. And Leonard Cohen was kind of inspired by her. And she was obviously clearly amused, but she was doing something that he hadn't yet sort of settled into uh, in terms of being an artist. I mean, he hadn't even recorded a song and and Suzanne was also a dancer and they would sit and they would talk for hours and spend all this time together and she is, would say in an interview that it was better than sex it never became a physical relationship but again it was this moment in time and so I thought to really capture the essence of this memory 
which is based on nostalgia and poetry is uh, romantic. And I thought, well, then if we could just provide a glimpse into what this magic moment was for these two human beings, then I feel like we're kind of where we should be in terms of doing a music video for this iconic song. Now, when you actually pitched this to Andrea, how did it work out? Like, obviously, it's very visually specific. So did you kind of do references for her? Or were you just like, just trust me, we're going to put you in a nightgown, throw you out, we'll, you'll see what happens? <laughs> yeah, actually, I put together a pitch and a lookbook. Even though we're friends, I like to keep business and friendship, you know, separate. And I also, at the same time, asked her to trust me that we were going to go on this journey. I mean, her color palette, if you're familiar with Andrea's work, is very different than what you see in the music video. But again, in terms of the song coming out in the 60s and representing that time and honoring that time, the palette I felt in staying with the dream and the ethereal sort of scape would be to be in the pastel sort of range as opposed to your primary is like your dark blues and blacks and reds and everything, you know, and then again, even though Andrea Romolo is a dancer herself, my friend Elena Elmer did the choreography and Andrea's never done any contemporary dance before. So she said, I trust you, push me, I want to be pushed. And she fully went down the rabbit hole with me and did trust me 1000%. And then my amazing uh, cinematographer, Gabriella Osio-Vanden, there was just, we sort of this trio of us and my producer, Jen Poe, I guess it's a quadruple, I don't know, what do you say, a foursome. We all just sort of went down this thing together. And uh, when we were filming, my producer, Jen Pogue, actually had tears streaming down her eyes. And this happened with Joey as well, or when we tend to work together, she's like, I never really understand what you're doing, Jess, until we're on set, it's on the day, and then it all comes together and it lands for me and I get what you're doing. And I said, well, at least you get there. You know, it was a lot of everyone trusting me. You know, you try to be as clear in your vision as possible. But a lot of the time, you know, how do you clarify everything that's in your head? You you do have to form a team, uh, especially with the talent where they are just going to trust you and that you know what you're doing, you know where you're going and and then go and jump off together. Now, uh, I am 92 years old, as uh, many listeners of this podcast know. (laughs) And so I have not actually seen a music video since the days of much music, which is how you used to see musical television. And my partner, who is actually older than I am, was like, oh, Becky, it's actually bigger now because YouTube and the Internet and that's how people watch them and they're huge and they're cinematic and this is often how artists find new audiences and they really get a really great reach with the repostability as opposed to just a song. So for a filmmaker to make things or someone who's kind of dipping their toe into that side of the creative field, what does it mean to you to be able to make a music video and what does it mean for your your skill and your career? I've always been obsessed with music. Um, I mean, obviously I'm a huge music fan and I'm a big fan of Leonard Cohen And so when I went to Andrea's album release and heard that her rendition of Suzanne and having an attachment to it, not only do you have the musician who wrote the song story, you have the musician who then translated the song into their version. And then I also have a personal attachment to it. And so to be able to bring it to screen and kind of make it come to life and create my own sort of short film within that scope It felt very reaffirming as an artist to be able to do that. In terms of a scope of a career, I guess some people would call it a calling card, but I 
I, I don't really know what it means in terms of like longevity for my career. If it is a calling card, I just know that this was a personal story for me and, and to be able to actually do it and complete it and for it to now be out there. Uh, I feel like I get to pat myself on the back and say gold stars to myself. <laughs> I made something. Well, you talked a little bit about your short film, which you made as well, which sits in that same sort of ethereal, wide-eyed vein. Uh, it's experimental, very Canadian, well done. We encourage this. And also is in the pattern that you have of Jessica, Jessica, Joey, Suzanne. Let's talk about that. Oh, the names. <laughs> I know. I don't know what it is. Jess Greco, who's my collaborating partner for uh, Jessica Jessica I was like you and the names I'm like I don't know what it is I just think it's very simple in terms of uh, titles for things and that's what comes to me thus far but the feature to be to be clear actually the feature that I'm going to start working on this year is called Concrete Marshmallows so (laughs) (laughs) yeah I know you're like what's that even going to be about no I love it because for me that seems like like all of your work that I have seen up into this point it has all been centered around specific characters and specific human beings and specifically women, uh, including the the music video. And yeah. Joey is kind of the same thing where it's centering around one specific human being, one woman named Joey, as she kind of both affects and is affected by all these different choices in her life. Again, experimental. I may, in fact, be in misinterpreting this. No, no. That seems to be a key point of interest for you. Would you say that's true? Yeah. I mean, Joey, again, is... is personal it's the first film that I've written it was kind of when I was going through some stuff in my life some health stuff and there was a certain point where things sort of seemed to be surreal and like you couldn't I couldn't really wake up from the dream it was like no no I'm gonna wake up from this this isn't really happening but then you couldn't really wake up and you kind of things kept happening and weird sort of situations and you know like in our dreams People in our lives appear in our dreams as different characters for whatever reason, because it's how our brain manifests them. And so Joey was sort of my version of what was actually happening in my life and set on a wedding day because weddings are crazy and, you know, it's a big change in your life. And for me with this health stuff, it was very life changing and I had a lot of sort of aha moments, but Uh, I won't ruin the end of Joey, but when what happens happens and she kind of just goes, yeah, okay. It's like, well, no, I'm not quite out of this yet. (laughs) I'm not going to wake up from this quite yet, but uh, there is hope. And I guess this is just kind of how it's going to go right now. Now you're headed out on the festival trail with this one. What are your hopes for it? Oh, so many hopes. You know, we've submitted to our big dream festivals. Part of the thing about going to festivals is obviously traveling. When we went to Marfa Film Festival and to Los Angeles a couple times with Jessica Jessica, we just got to meet so many amazing like-minded filmmakers who we've all stayed in touch with. And so we've sort of built a community outside of our community here in Canada. We got treated so well and honored as filmmakers, which was amazing. So I just hope wherever it is that we land that we have experiences that are similar and yet unique to themselves. Now, we're going to be keeping our listeners posted on our Twitter. You're going to want to make sure to follow us at RCM Pod. How can people follow your journey? I am on Twitter and on Instagram as Jess underscore Hinkson. Pretty simple. 
Pretty simple. <laughs> nice, nice and clear. And we'll have a link yeah. to that on the website as well. Now let's get into the juicy stuff that I know people want to know more about. You mentioned what film we were talking about, but once again, what movie are we talking about today and why did you choose it? We're talking about Café de Fleur by written and directed by Jean-Marc Vallée. This is a film that had a big imprint on my soul. I just, I've never had the opportunity to actually actively discuss it. And so when I was asked which Canadian film I wanted to talk about, I was like, oh, goody, we can, maybe we can talk about this. <laughs> oh, we certainly can, because I had not seen this one before. Um, of course, I am very familiar with uh, Jean-Marc Vallée. Let's talk yeah. a little bit about him. How are you familiar with him and his work? What was your entry point for him? I believe my entry point for him was crazy. A film done in Montreal. I think it was his first film or one of his first films. And then the second time that I saw any of his work was Cafe de Flore. And then obviously I've seen you know, Big Little Lies, and uh, he's doing very well. Yeah, he's fine. We're, we're not worried about him, which is why I'm, I'm feeling okay being like, we can go a little bit into some critiques things. Tell me a little bit about what the plot line is for this. Well, it's a love story between a man and a woman, a mother and her son, and it's like a fantastical, uh, mystical odyssey on love and soulmates to further soulmates, twin flame souls. So... Ooga booga. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's it's a interesting little story with like crazy a crazy cast. But people will recognize uh, Evelyn Brochu as one of the actresses. We've talked about her before in Tom à la Ferme. She's fascinating. Vanessa Paradis is in this. Kevin Parent, uh, Alain Florent. Uh, it was nominated for a whole bunch of Genie Awards. It is spoilable, and we are going to get into those spoilers. It's pretty easy to find. You can rent it on iTunes for like five bucks. So if this is something that you want to see, and I I would say I recommend it. I recommend it. What do you, yes, obviously you recommend it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I love it. It's two stories that are intertwined within a story. Part of the reason that I love it is because it's nonlinear and yet linear at the same time, which constantly keeps you wondering and engaged as an audience member. I want to talk a minute about where this sort of sits in his filmmaking history, because as you discussed, he did Crazy, which was one of his first. He did that in 2005. He's been doing shorts and films since 1992, so he's been around for a little bit. Yeah. And then he did Young Victoria for the money. So, you know, I'm just going to make an Oscar-nominated and award-winning film just for the cash. Why not? Yeah. So that he could come back and do Café de Flora as his very next outing. He would follow it up with Dallas Buyers Club and and wild. So, you know, this is kind of the level that we're talking about here. What's interesting about this one to me that I think is really uh, similar to what you do as a, a filmmaker is man, this man knows how to use music. Holy cow. All the way back from crazy, you think about uh, the scene where um, Marc-Andre Grandin, yes, yeah. Marc-Andre Grandin, where he's um, got the Ziggy Stardust lightning bolt across his face and he's listening to Bowie and he's laying on his back staring at the ceiling or or the moments where he's like floating through the church and all this to like the ethereal strains. This is all in Café de Flore as well, which is also based on a song title. And it's just symphonic in the way he uses music. Well, I agree. I mean, you watch interviews with Jean-Marc Vallée and people ask him like what inspired this film and the story and it was literally that song Cafe de Flore that he wanted to honor the song and it's like what you know but I but I also get it because music for me is such a it's a character it's an added character 
within the storytelling and you know with Joey the music for me was very specific and I had Lily Frost's songs picked out a long time ago so I get that it's like it adds it builds um and it elevates the story 1000 percent uh and I mean I just think that's what it is for him because he's also a DJ is he not he is yeah of course he is. <laughs> it's just, yeah. he's, he's Quebecois. That's what they do. Yeah. It's a little bit of everything artistic, right? Yeah. I get what he's putting down. Part of that's what's so interesting to me. And the main, one of the main male characters in this is also a DJ. And there is an intermixing, the way good DJs work, where it's not just I'm putting on my iPod playlist and why you hire one for events as opposed to putting on an iPod playlist. They are able to sort of intersect and intertwine different songs into each other. When you hear a really spectacular mashup or mix up and you're like, oh, oh, wow, that transition was magical. It's almost the same as editing film or in the way this film is created, the way the two storylines, as you said, the one that happens in the 1960s in Paris and the one that happens in 2011 in Montreal, as they intertwine, it's like a really good DJ set that kind of slides back and forth into each other. Well, and it was interesting because the the lead character in Café de Flor, as you said, is a DJ. And there were, I remember when I the first time I watched it, I was like, I wonder if this is his story on some level or if it's personal to him in a way that he hasn't maybe vocalized ever because he himself is a DJ and because music you know plays was I think an added character to the film and music is such an important thing for him in his personal life so I just I was something that I've always wondered and I was like if I ever have the opportunity to meet Jean-Marc Ballet I'll just be like if you have five minutes I would really love to ask you some questions. I can actually help you out on this because he did a number of interviews on this and I my I did my research and I did my little dig in. This is this is one of the added bonuses you get to that when you listen to the show. Please donate to our Patreon. Uh, he was originally inspired obviously by the song and he started to think about where this would come from and and what kind of people would be listening to this at what time because it has this sound of the 1960s but it yeah. was not released until 2001 I believe 2001. Yeah, 2001. So it's actually anachronistic that it exists in the world of the 1960s here, which is potentially one of the reasons why it may or may not be in Carole's imagination in the actual film, because the song does yeah. not exist in the 1960s. So he wanted this idea of how that was going to happen. Then he started thinking about the idea of love and the idea of soulmates, and was that actually a thing? And if that was a thing, and they were existing in two parallel timelines, how would those things intertwine together? And then that just kind of went from there. Got it. Okay. Add in the plot line of the mom caring for her child child with Down syndromes who's like incredibly overprotective but wanting this this kid to grow up big and strong and then you throw in the third attack if you will uh, on yeah. that relationship from another little girl with Down syndrome who the little boy falls in love with because they are spoiler alert, meant to be the soulmates. And then you flash that forward into the future where all of these people have now been reincarnated and they're in one big mess together and that you have to get over the fact that, oh, I am not meant to be with this person even though I am attached to them and now I have to now I have to move on. There's a lot of deep thinky things going on here. There's a lot of deep connection and soul work, but it's sort of these, these parallels and these past lives and the karmic connection, if you will, if you're into any of that stuff if you're not namaste but uh, <laughs> this character feels this connection to this character and and it they feel very strongly and they feel deeply that they're meant to be together 
but for whatever reason, it doesn't work in this lifetime. And so because of the past karmic connection in the present day, what is meant to happen is probably healing and forgiveness. You get really immersed in these people's lives. I also found it very relatable. And I realize I'm probably projecting my own life stuff onto this, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, you kind of, you start to think like, oh yeah, I've had that connection and I learned a lot from that relationship and I grew because of that relationship, but it was also painful because it felt like such a deep soul connection. And I feel like that's a lot of what is happening in the journeys of these relationships that are intertwined uh, within this film. Now, one of the issues I have when I watch Quebecois film that I have a tough time with because I was not raised Catholic, and I certainly was not raised Catholic within this time period in French Canada, to be able to divorce, especially from the work I think of uh, Jean-Marc Vallée, divorce Catholicism from his earlier works is really difficult. And as far as I can tell, Catholics, not so down with the idea of past lives or soulmates. So I think exactly. that's yeah. kind of fascinating that um, crazy hits so hard into the idea of Catholic guilt and uh, why we do what we do and the and the effect on families. And then you have this one, which is all about a completely different kind of spiritualism, if you will. And the thought processes between those two is how do you how do you go about reconciling that? It's a great question that I don't have the answer to. Yeah, I, honestly, I wish I wish I knew more about French Catholic. Uh, I mean, I know a little bit, but like French Catholic history in terms of where the spiritualism element comes in, because I'm sure that would have been, you know, 1960s, 1970s stuff as well, the same time it hit the rest of the world. Agreed. I do have to bring something up with you because I have to admit, the ending of this kind of pissed me off. And I was trying to figure out what about it irked me. At the end of the film, the DJ ends up, he divorces his wife, who is kind of on this own journey, this spiraling journey. He has been with his wife since they were children. They have a very deep connection. They have two children themselves. And he is taken up with this other woman who uh, he both meets at a party and they also happen to attend AA together. And the two of them, in, in, the, in the end of the story, you find out that the woman he has left his wife for and he are actually the soulmates and that the um the woman he was with his his ex-wife was the mother in the previous life and the two of them were the two children and uh the mother in the previous life played by Vanessa Paradis uh killed the two children in a speeding vehicle intentionally and so this whole karmic burden issue is that she now has to she is part of this but he is not her soulmate even though she feels like he is he she is just connected to him so there has to be as Jessica said a a healing and an apology that happens between both sets so that they so that everybody can move on as a unit. The very end of it, because they finish at the wedding of the of the new couple, they, they get married and she shows up. Everything's fine now. I get my ex-wife and I get this new woman and my kids are now all fine with this. Everybody's happy. It's a little wish fulfillment-y. And I was trying to figure out, okay, this irks me, but it shouldn't irk me this bad because I've been along for the journey. Why does this bother me? And then it clued in and I was like, oh... I think this makes me mad because this feels like Medea if Jason got what he wanted and won. Oh, interesting. You're you're familiar with the Medea myth, yes? 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. For our listeners, Medea notoriously killed her children, vilified as a mega bitch. But when you go into the actual story about what happened, Jason took the 13-year-old Medea from her home, uh, convinced her to betray her family so they could get the, the golden fleece, took her back to his land. She was exiled, lost everything for this man. He never married her, but they had two sons together. And then one day he just decides, oh, hey, so uh, I'm going to get rid of you and I'm going to marry a younger, prettier woman so that I can solidify my, I guess, status as a ruler with this other country. I'm going to make a liaison. So you're going to fuck off and I'm going to keep the kids. And you're just going to be okay with that because we've had a good run. And Medea said, yeah, that's not happening. And so she sent a poison dress to this young woman and basically melted her. As a direct result, decided to kill her children because had she gone on the run with them or had she left them behind, all the people there would have killed them. So still not great. Don't kill your kids. But you can kind of rationalize why she did it when you understand the complete history of what happened to her and what Jason did. And when you're watching this, it felt like the same thing. And some of the parallels are pretty clear in that he has a new younger wife. This is the woman he's supposed to be with for whatever reason, be it be it spiritual, be it cosmic. Uh, there's two daughters involved instead of two sons who are not totally sure what's going on with everything. Two children are killed. Um, the woman is the one who is overreacting and she's the one who has to apologize for everything, even though she's the one who was wronged. Well, and also that she's like deemed as being crazy. Yeah. And- and unwell yeah. because her husband is with this younger, much younger woman and she's fighting for their marriage and he's just sort of like, bye. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to simplify it, I'm so tired of women being deemed as crazy and hysterical and all of these things because communicating that they're emotional and that they have feelings about the fact that they would like their marriage to, you know, for this instance, work out and that they would like you to stay and maybe work on our marriage, <laughs> like instead yeah. of leaving and knowing Jean-Marc Vallée and the, like the way that he works, I wouldn't be surprised if he kind of went into mythology and sort of incorporated that in terms of these lives and these characters and the parallels. Yeah, I do appreciate because he does have moments in the film where he he does show you Carol, the the wife, the ex-wife's yeah. point of view, and that where she did try to save the marriage. But there is like a whole just forget about him. Why can't you just move on? And the supernatural cosmic element of it gives her that rational rationalization. There is also the whole element of is all this in her head because it might just be that she may not be crazy that she is attached to this thing on a karmic level. But then her forgiveness is interesting to me because it's like okay does she then just get to wash her hands of murder in a past life is that how it works is it that easy well I feel like I understand what you mean in the sense that it was just sort of all wrapped up in a pretty bow and you know every there were bells and whistles and everything and it was over after this very (laughs) complicated (laughs) journey that we've been on and it's all of a sudden it's like oh so now that we've kind of understood what has happened here and she understands the karmic connection they the forgiveness scene that they have with one another is beautiful but then it's almost like you wish that it ended there as opposed to the pretty neat sort of wrap-up that we that happens with the wedding and everyone being just totally okay with it because how can you upon that realization knowing that you murdered your child in your past life and has shown up as your husband in this life that you've been with since you were children and having that realization, how do you just then go, okay, cool. 
Well, I guess that's a wrap on that. So uh, we're good. Yeah, something I, I genuinely love about Jean-Marc Vallée's stuff is that when he makes a mess in his movies, when his inciting incidents happen, when when all the, the act breaks happen, um, he makes a mess. Like, everything is on fire. And the ending of this did feel a little bit American Horror Story, where it's like, well, we did a bunch of horrible things. We have no idea how to get out of it. So, aliens? Yeah. <laughs> well, the first time I watched this film, I was very emotional. Yeah, watching it and I did not expect it because I love to watch films when I actually don't know a lot about them the more buzz the more somebody's telling me to go see something I tend to hold off for as long as possible because uh, I love the element of surprise and not knowing uh, personally it really took me aback but it was just it's quite devastating and heartbreaking yeah. and then for it all of a sudden to just be over you kind of feel like but no <laughs> Wait a second. I'm wrapping my head around this as the, as an audience. Uh, and you now it's done. And you're just, that's over. It's it. That's it. Okay. I, I don't know what to do with that. Well, let me ask you, is there someone specific in this that you are able to connect with and empathize with more than anybody else? Because it's a pretty big cast with a whole bunch of different stuff going on that there's a bunch of different entry points. The wife is definitely who I related to the most but I also really loved um, Vanessa Paradis she uh, was heartbreaking and I understood why she did what she did why she was protective and everything but so those are the two characters for me you I started out being able to understand Antoine, who's the, the DJ and the dad. The movie very much starts from his point of view and his perspective. He's meant to be your entry point, and I'm sure also Jean-Marc Ballet's entry point into the writing. I'm just going to throw that into his mouth. Yeah. And then as they sort of paralleled over to Vanessa Paradis' character of Jacqueline, I was like, okay, now I'm, now I'm in this one, and I'm seeing these two lives parallel. And because we didn't get into, we really don't get to spend that much time with Evelyn Brochu's character as Rose... And at times she's almost vilified for being the other woman. Like she never feels totally fully rounded, but neither on that and the other hand, when you see her other equivalent of uh, Veronique in her past life, she's not particularly well-rounded either. They're both just the monkey wrenches that get thrown into the works of something that was working just fine. Thank you very much. Yeah. But as things kind of went on in the, the Vanessa Paradis Jacqueline storyline, that I started like the actual killing of the children that I just was like, I don't know if I'm bo on board for that. I don't know if I saw her lose enough control for that to be the only way out and the only answer for her. Um, but all the other stuff leading up to that, I was like, protective mama bear, this is the shit you've gone through. This is what this is what has happened to you. Um, that I've all been able, uh, that I was on board for until the actual moment where she killed the kids. And I was like, it's taking it a little far, honey. Well, it was, it was. Too far. I mean, I, and also it wasn't, I, again, was not expecting that mm. her story. Yeah. I, I did, I, I got it and I, I was along for the ride and everything. The car wreck was sh like, I found, I think some shock value. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, it's beautifully shot. And it's yeah. horrifying. I think that's why I had such an emotional reaction is because of the shock and how they filmed it, which was gorgeous again, but I just was, 
yeah, it's devastating. Yeah, because it's not just the fact that she's killing children, which in itself is horrible. It's one of the children is her own. Uh, One of the children she's just taken out for a ride. And uh, both of them have Down syndrome. And uh, if you know kids with Down syndrome, they are just pure trust and love. And they are wonderful human beings. And uh, (laughs) that whole idea that they would just go along so trustingly and that this would happen to them, I think, really adds that extra layer of... The particular, I don't know the the kids' names, but the connection that they had and the talent that they had. I mean, you're completely in love with these two kids. Uh, Marin Guerrier and uh, Alice Dubois play Laurent and Véronique. They actually got the part because they knew each other. And they, uh, I believe it was Laurent who originally auditioned and was like, I have a girlfriend at school. You should meet her. And then Alice came on board and then they, they were both cast in the film as a direct result. So they do actually have that kind of, or they did I'm not sure what their current status is but they did have that sort of connection and that sort of relationship yeah it's beautiful it was beautiful so yeah I think that that element of because of that relationship that they had that was just so beautiful and real that again just was another layer added to that scene you know and when you see that it's just explosive uh, on all levels not just visually. Okay, Jean-Marc Ballet. <laughs> <laughs> and one day you will see him at, let's say, TIFF, because that's probably where he'll be. And you'll be like, okay, you, yeah. me, we're going for coffee. We're hashing this out. Yeah, we are. We're going We're going to have conversations. <laughs> you owe me an emotional purge, good sir. Well, sharp objects. Yeah. I mean, I have so many questions about sharp objects, too. But anyway, we're not talking <laughs> about that. <laughs> I'm going to recommend you get yourself a podcast. You give him a call. You see what you can do. We are now at favorite moments. Uh, what was your favorite? favorite moment of this film? Well, it's so interesting because you're asking who my favorite characters are, but my my favorite scene is the dance scene. It's a, perfect. Who can make line dancing sexy? Like, that's just the weirdest thing to But me. that's, I mean, and it's, I don't even know, I don't even know what to say. I'm like, how did you, and it's, it's so effortless. That's what makes it, I think, sexy is that it's effortless and it's light and it's just sort of like yeah of course uh that would happen at that dinner party it probably happens at all their dinner parties <laughs> <laughs> because they're all so beautiful and free and french and you can't help but love them i know i'm like i want to go to france <laughs> <laughs> oh even quebecois people are just something so sensuous yeah. about them i've only been to montreal once and i just it's romantic yeah i have there's no other way to say it it's romantic it's poetic and you want to sit and drink wine or tequila and just smoke way too many cigarettes and be cool. And they just make beautiful films. And then we get to talk about them. And it's great. Exactly. <laughs> I'm so glad they're part of our country. My favorite moment is, and it's weird because it's music, but it's not music. And it's the two younger versions of the husband and wife as when they're teenagers are whispering the lyrics of the cures just like heaven to each other. And first yeah. and foremost, I fucking love that song. And secondly, yeah. it's like, yeah, that's being a teenager and you decide to let lyrics speak for you because they're your poetry. That's the coolest. And I just I just love that moment. It just was so relatable and encapsulated so much of what teenagehood was, especially for, for someone like me. Well, I, I mean, yeah, it's there's so many brilliant moments in the film. But another thing in terms of Jean-Marc Vallée and going back to like his music selection is that even if you don't know the music per se or you do, it's all always relatable. Yeah. And it, for you yourself, who's the voyeur of the story, 
you get to go on this journey for yourself. So therefore it kind of ties you in with these characters and it becomes personal to you uh, in the story that you're watching that he has put on the screen and put together for you. So as a final thought, this film obviously influenced you. Can you kind of pinpoint exactly where and how? Is there like a moment you can? That moment when the car crashes and then you get to go to uh, the lead character in present time. And I, th- when you realize just what seems nonlinear is actually linear and that everything is connected in, in these two parallel universes at different times and space. And to me, in terms of being a storyteller and being a creator, I find that really fascinating. I find it interesting. And I like to think the person who's watching uh, whatever I'm watching. And therefore, I hope that that's what happens when people watch um, the stuff that I create. That's a perfect note to say how one more time do people find the beautiful things you create? Um, Right now, you can just follow me on Instagram or on Twitter at Jess underscore Hinkson. Um, And hopefully my goal for 2020 is to get a website up and going. (laughs) Hey, oh, (laughs) I believe in you. I believe in your ability to do that. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. And then as per usual, you can find me on the Twitters at Delish Shrimpton. That's the masculine, the Shrimpton over there. Uh, A Year in Film has just dropped on both Hollywood Suite and on Amazon Prime in Canada, if you've got it. I'm really proud of it. Cam is in it. Cam co-wrote it along with a bunch of friends of the show are on it and previous guests. They're all really smart, amazing people talking about Canadian film and all kinds of film and how it affected them and how it will affect you. It's such a great show and I'm really, really proud to be part of it. Um, And then you can also uh, check out the podcast page and the patreon at rcm podcast and at rcm pod to donate to our patreon jessica thank you again so much for joining us today thank you for having me again it was lovely to chat let's go get a moose head okay <laughs> perfect thanks for listening to the royal canadian movie podcast if you like what we're doing please remember to rate us and subscribe on itunes or on your favorite podcatcher it helps people find our podcast and canadian media they love Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.